we're you know waist high in this river and he's like well if you, i mean if you think this is interesting like you should hear about this kid who just broke into the british museum of natural history stole a million dollars worth of dead birds in order to sell to this cultish subculture of victorian salmon fly tires so that he could buy himself a new golden flute Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. We have a special book club episode this week for you and indeed over the next two weeks as we speak to Kirk Wallace Johnson, author of the acclaimed bestseller The Feather Thief. For those of you who are not aware of the story or the book, all I can say is go read it. And I'm sure after listening to the interview with Kirk, you'd be even more interested in it as it's a story about a crime heist involving the fly tying world and specifically those tires wanting to get their hands on extremely rare feathers from the 19th century. Non-fly anglers who've read the book have raved about it and have been pushing it on on anyone that I meet. And as for the Irish angle, well, there is, of course, the Irish influence on fly time in the 1800s. And in the context of the crime investigation, it was an undercover PSNI officer who first became aware of the stolen swag that was being offered to the fly time world. And Tom, I think I'm right in that I recommended the book to you as well and had long wanted a cover for the book club. Yeah, good man, Dara. Yeah, I'll never forget you started telling me about the feather thief and got to read. And I, of course, my usual response, yeah, yeah, I'll read it. Yeah, I must get around to that. And then he said, we've got Kirk for the interview. Uh, have you read the feather thief? I think he said to me. And I went, uh, I haven't. No, but um, <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not yet. So I, I read it in a week and I have to thank you. I have to, it was great that we got to get Kirk on the show because I read it out of necessity, but I could not leave it down. Like, I think I read it in three days, not four days, um, because Kirk was, we had Kirk due in to talk to him. But I think I would have read it in that amount of time anyway. I could not put it down. The whole thing was fascinating. Now, I will say, initially when I started off, I did sort of wonder where he was going when he was back in the 1800s on a burning, exploring ship um, down off the coast of South America. But the whole thing ties in and ah, but it is just fascinating. And you said there in the in the intro about how non-fly anglers have read the book have raved about it. You'll understand why, but as fly, I mean, like you like as as fly uh, fly anglers, it was just it was enthralling. It's how he takes it through the story, I think is absolutely amazing. Um it like he's a journalist. We get into Kirk's life, which is just <laughs> the book in itself, like you know, his life story, about- his life story is amazing. Basin being in Iraq and then suffering mm. from PS, PTSD and then, you know, obviously getting more into fly fishing and then he comes across the story and then he just, it's, it just won't let him go. You know, he just, and the more he digs into it, the more he's uncovering. And what I actually, does, what I actually got out of it, I thought was fascinating is that whole fly tying world online, mm. yeah. you know, of like the links fly tires were prepared to go to, to get certain feathers and kind of, you know, see no evil, hear no evil kind of mindset, like of, well, you know, don't want to know where it really came from, you know. A bit of a turning of a blind eye. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, exactly what I don't know doesn't hurt me. Yeah, 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 it came from a collection that was found, you know, it was about to be thrown out of a house, do you know? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and the interesting thing, and he says that anybody who's probably got a bit of sympathy, uh, let's say, with the tires on this and... We're primarily a fishing audience. He, he actually says, listen, you got a guy. These guys don't fish with them. You know, they're not fished with, you know. I mean, the the, the main the main character in the book that this is centered around never fished. Yeah. yeah you know, it's just but this it's it's like just this obsession, you know, mm. and that they get into and 
you're a flight tire. You're not quite as obsessed, but no, you can probably, no. appre- but you can appreciate though, I suppose, nearly the, the rabbit holes or the depths that suddenly people just kind of get into like. Yeah. And you know what? He brings, he, he really in his writing brings that sense around how, how this can happen to people. You yeah. know, yeah. You, you really get into that, the whole, the world, the, it's a separate world of the fly tire, of the classic, uh, classic fly, fly tire. Yeah, yeah, I think that, and that's that's the word, the classic fly tire, as opposed to me who's looking for the right shade for a golden olive bumble. You know, you know, I'm not breaking into a museum to get the proper shade of golden olive. It's not, isn't it? Like, it's absolutely nuts. But I think it's a brilliant interview um, with Kirk. He's just such a fascinating guy. So much so, like, and everybody knows kind of the episodes that we do are normally kind of, you know, 45, 50 Mm. minutes. We were speaking with Kirk for over two hours. We could have covered it. We could have chatted to him probably for another couple of hours. It was that kind of thing. So we've split it into two um, to tell us all about the feather thief and his investigation of the story and his writing of it. It's a pretty great story i'm biased but um but you know i was doing this for i don't know almost 10 years of my life i was running this organization to to get iraqi refugees out and at the center of that organization i had built this army of attorneys from all over the country from these top law firms and um and they were all doing pro bono representation of the iraqis on my list and my wife was the first lawyer in in Los Angeles to represent people on my list. So she, before we ever met, she had gotten dozens of of families out. And so when my first book came out, um, I, I had an, an event in L.A. It was a memoir about this whole kind of battle with the U.S. government. And I had an L.A. event and I I. I invited all of our kind of LA connections. And I, I mean, I was completely, I, I was living in Boston at the time and I, I literally moved from Boston to LA eight days later, all of my stuff was sitting and gathering dust for, for about a year or so. Um, but I had a, I had a ring after, after eight weeks, um, <laughs> pr- proposed at at four months. And, uh, and it, it's funny because on our, that night uh you know it was like this the whole discussion that night like around this event was around my refugee work and the war and all of this and we went to a a bar afterwards uh mj and and i and um we were already like very quickly smitten but i was like i gotta tell you though like i i'm trying to get out i'm trying to do something else with my life and i've there's this story that I've become obsessed with about this kid that broke into the British Museum. Oh my God. And, and so like to her great credit, she didn't get freaked out. And to your luck. And to your luck. Oh, I know. <laughs> Were you trying to get rid of her? <laughs> well, no, but you know, it goes, it goes way beyond that. And so even for the first, for the first, I don't know, six months, um, of our marriage, she was basically just carrying me. I was making no money, but she was like, you gotta, you gotta write this proposal. And it required like tons. I mean, it turned out to be like an 80 page proposal. I mean, I, I, like, cause I didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be able to write the book if I didn't really have the goods on, on Edwin and, and, and the rest of the story. And, um, 
And so I was obsessively working on the proposal, trying to figure out how to tell this story. We bought our first home and um, I had, you know, the, we had the first mortgage payment was looming. <laughs> and I sent that proposal to Scribner, which published my first book. And usually they have like, it's a right of first refusal on your next book. And I was, you know, I was thinking like, okay, I think this there's something to this story. Um, I think they're going to offer me a deal. I don't know how much it'll be for. Um, but Scribner, after all of this work, I mean, I was already at that point, like, a, you know, I would say years into my obsession, but but one full year into like working on the proposal and researching, Scribner passed on it in four hours. And they said, this is, we, we think you should just keep writing about war and refugees and these types of things. Wow. And I had this, I had this, I was sitting right here and I had this kind of crisis of confidence where I was like, how am I going to tell this incredible woman who's taking, you know, taking this great bet on me and also on this, on this story that, that I, I just blew it. Like, and I, I, I can't really explain what uh, came over me, but one of the things I did was I printed the thing out, the proposal and I put it in an envelope and I found David Attenborough's mailing address. And I was, I sent him a letter and I was like, this is something I've been kind of consumed with. And I basically, I'm like, could you just tell me if you think there's anything here? I was not expecting a reply at all. It was, it was just a kind of like, I was in the, you know, uh, in the sort of valley of despair at that point. And, and Attenborough, you know, started his career largely on the birds of paradise, you know? Mm. And lo and behold, like two weeks later, this Royal mail letter comes and it's, and it's Attenborough saying, you have to write this. I've been wondering what's happened to those birds. And of course he's a trustee of the, of the natural history museum of the British museum. And then he gives me, he writes his phone number and he's like, call me. And I'm, I'm like nervously, like, do you say, sir, David, do you say, sir, Attenborough? I mean, I I don't know this (laughs) shit, you know? Um, and um but i i developed this friendship with him i just it's it's funny because it's just it's right i i just got i just got another letter from him in the mail like two days ago um where he's he's super excited about the tv series that that is uh that i'm i'm because i'm adapting it now um but that was like a big shot in the arm but where attenborough is like however i can help i'm always a phone call away and then and then um and then when the book came out, I was in the UK on tour and and I I I I went over to Attenborough's house and I'm I was like approaching his front door. I was a little nervous. I thought it was gonna be like a five-minute hello kind of thing. And I'm I'm just about at the the doorbell and my British publicist calls and she's like, it's his it's his 89th birthday today. You gotta bring a present. I'm like, what the hell can I give David Attenborough that like he doesn't, you know, he doesn't, I showed up empty handed. And, and um, I, I think I was, I think I was there for five, six hours. Um, and I, I had, I had to leave because I had to go give an event. I had to go speak and it, but it was killing me. Cause I was just like the British natural history museum is, is I think one of the only museums in the world that doesn't carry the feather thief. 
and they they won't carry it, even though if they could just see that the whole book is like it's a love letter to them, to their institution, to their raison d'être, you know. So it's like, uh, but they're they're just too uh, embarrassed, embarrassed. Yeah, I think they, yeah, and I think that kind of uh, that dynamic has been something of the the norm throughout the whole investigation, where I think they they wanted this thing to just stay in the in the in the rear view or or yeah. or buried and i was kind of this american horsefly buzzing around you know to their eternal annoyance you know so you know, one of the things after reading it i you know i, I kind of like i only in hushed tones from now on when i say i'm a fly tire <laughs> <laughs> but you know one funny thing is um uh like at, at some point deep in the in the process of reporting the book and doing this investigation you know i would like excitedly tell my wife like so and so threatened me or so and so is really like they're you know and and at one point she said to me she's like well do we do we need to be concerned like should we be worried for our safety like um and i i kept telling her i was like um after everything i've been through and the war, this near-death experience, like, um, I just refuse to believe in a world where it's a fly tire that gets me in the end. <laughs> um, yeah, they don't make I movies had... about that. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. But there was there was one event where I was in, I think I was back in New Mexico on on tour, and um they they had me do the signing line right before the event, which is a little unusual, but there's this long line of people I'm signing books, making small talk. The, the handler's kind of pressuring me to like, we've got, okay, there's only one person left. And I, and this, I don't look up. I'm just, but all of a sudden there's a, a salmon fly dropped on the table in front of me. And I look up at this guy and he goes, turn it over. And I look on the back and it says tied by Edwin wrist. And my eyes kind of bulge. And I was like, where'd you get this? And he goes, I'm his uncle. And then the and then the the handler goes, okay, we really have to go. And so for the first like five minutes of my talk, I'm walking around stage and I'm like, I'm wondering if I'm gonna see one of those like laser, <laughs> like, you know, targeting lights. <laughs> so I actually like, I like, I mean, I was joking, but I vocalized that I was like, I just need to say, uh, if somebody takes me down and I pointed to the uncle, <laughs> that's like, that's where you guys should start looking, you know? Uh, but but he, he, we actually like, we went out to a bar afterwards and I, I mean, it was a pretty incredible conversation where, I mean, I learned a lot more, but. Um, it's really interesting. You're talking about, you met your wife, this story consumed you. Um, and what was it that like, you know, and even your publisher said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. But yeah. You, like, even after that, you still kept going. What was it about it that it just you just couldn't let it go? Because obviously you were right, judging by the success of it afterwards and all that. Like, so what was it that just you wouldn't let go? I think it was a confluence of, of things. There was a. I was at a moment of. You know despair i would say in my life and, and it's sort of to be honest it was a sort of self-pitying despair i mean i was i was doing something that felt very meaningful i mean it was like you know i was literally helping get thousands of people out to safety but it was never ending 
And I hadn't wanted to do that. I hadn't, didn't have dreams of being a, a refugee advocate. I just was trying to help one friend who was being targeted because he was seen as a collaborator for the Americans. And that then mushroomed into this massive thing that I had to keep doing. I had to get, and it, and it was, you know, I was like, I was miserable at like begging people for money. I didn't, I had, there was a general attitude in my mind of like, I'm just going to do this for one more year and then I'm out, do this for one more year and I'm out. I didn't like going to DC and fighting with these bureaucrats. I didn't like, I didn't want the, the media attention that I got through that work. Every part of me wanted to get out. And it was only like, I don't know, a couple of years into that battle that I, I started fly fishing. Cause I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm from the Midwest. I was raised, you know, digging night crawlers and just fishing for carp and, and bullheads and, and a, and a, a river that ran through my backyard. It was quite literally a toxic river. There was radioactive material dumped in it uh, over over generations. And so, uh, but there was a um, an overwhelming, like, we don't fly fish in this family, son. That's for like elites, for snobs. They're insufferable. We, we fish the, the real way, you know? <laughs> um, and so I always had this kind of block up in my mind around it until one, I went out once with a friend in New Hampshire. And it was like the, the moment I stepped into the river and started realizing like what, what was going to be required here to learn how to do this. I was completely, I was done. I was like, all right, well, I'm going to be doing this forever. Um, and, and so Fly fishing became something of like a, an act of escapism for me. Um, so I would, whenever I had a f- free day, I would just get in the, I'd wake up at three and be in the, in the mountains by five or 6 AM fishing. And I I didn't even, I know everyone says this, but I truly didn't care if I caught anything. It was just, I, I mean, I, and I didn't for a long time in the beginning, but it was just all of this, these huge oceans of of knowledge about what was happening around me that I had been until that point completely oblivious to I had just been like oh there's a bird in quotes or oh there's you know like I wasn't paying attention to any of the I didn't know anything about insects or the aquatic life cycles or any of that stuff I still consider myself fairly amateurish but but so fly fishing became this kind of um sanity bringing uh, and it's sort of therapeutic thing for me um, to kind of help work through some of the, the PTSD as well. Because that's what I want to ask you. Did this was fly, did you discover fly fishing before or after Iraq? After. Brilliant. Okay. So yeah. you might just give people just a bit of background in terms of how you ended up in Iraq in the first place, because yeah. obviously that will kind of maybe shape their understanding then why you needed such an escape um, after this. Yeah. So, I mean, the, 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 I guess the some kind of compressed version is that uh, my 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 degree was in Middle Eastern studies. I speak Arabic, um, and I had lived all over the Middle East and Egypt and Syria. Had been all over the place. Um, and Sorry, I was. Kurt, can I can I just because uh, I'm always fascinated because you often hear of um, American scholars or journalists who become fascinated with the Middle East and you know like yourself spend a good chunk of their career. Over it. What is it about for yourself? Was it about the Middle East that you found so fascinating? 
I had, I, I had this, I mean, to me, it was, I, I've been very lucky. I had this incredible grandmother, this four foot 11 Dutch woman who lived next door to us. And she never went to college, but she traveled a lot. She thought it was the best form of education. And so she had set up this, this deal where she wanted to bring each of her grandchildren somewhere in the world. It couldn't be to Disneyland. It had to be somewhere abroad. And I was the youngest of three boys. And so my oldest brother, when he was 15, this was always when we, when we, when we reached 15, which I think for boys, I think is a particularly kind of impressionable, maybe vulnerable age. I don't know, but she brought my oldest brother to Russia when it was still the Soviet union. He was sort of transfixed by what he saw there. He came back uh, enrolled in the local community college while he was still in high school. He just started going to night school at the college to start learning Russian. And then he ended up excelling and getting a degree from Georgetown in Russian studies. And he lived in, in Russia for years. My middle brother, same thing, she took him to Ecuador and he's fluent in Spanish and lived all over South America. And for me, and we didn't pick it. She just, it was sort of, sort of like she was spinning the globe. But for me, she brought me to Egypt when I was 15. And until that point in my life, um, you know, I was a teenager in Chicagoland during the Bulls era. My only dream was to to play in the NBA, but I was this doughy, short kid with no vertical. Like it wasn't, I kept getting cut from the basketball team and stuff. And it was, you know, it was a complete fantasy, but I go to Egypt and at that point, it was sort of like the the model had already been established by my brothers. And so I came home. I was like, that was cool. I want to learn Arabic. And I, I wasn't even old enough to drive yet, but my mom would bring me to the local community college for Arabic. When I exhausted their courses, I would then take the train a couple of days a week uh, into Chicago for for private lessons. And then I skipped my high school graduation to go uh, to the American University in Cairo uh, the summer before college started. Um, and I think there was something similar in that, like, I mean, I'm going to sound like I'm very obsessive, but um, Arabic is a another vast system that is very tricky to learn. But once you start kind of deciphering it, it's thrilling. Um, and so it was a sort of like, it was just a, it was just a challenge, um, that also had nothing to do with high school and all the drama. It was like a kind of private thing that, I don't know, made me feel special, like this, this private pursuit. And then, you know, and the whole time my, my dad was, when I was going to college, he's like, why are you, why are you studying Arabic? Like, what's the point of this? And then, um, and then this uh, 9-11 happened the, right before my senior year started, my fourth year. And within, uh, you know, a couple of weeks of that, I was getting recruited by our intelligence agencies and, and, and other work. But I had, at that point, I had landed, uh, it's called a Fulbright scholarship, but I, I, um, I had a scholarship to go back to, to Egypt to, to do a year of research there. Uh, but while I was there, um, I kind of started moonlighting um, at the New York Times Middle East Bureau. I was just this, you know, kind of gopher, but also I would I would go in in the mornings and translate the Arabic headlines for all of the American journalists that were flooding into the region in, in the run up to the Iraq war. And so I I was 
close to what was happening and I was very um, opposed to the war. A lot of people have, a lot of Americans have rewritten their stance now. Um, but I was opposed to the war, but I come from this family of, of public servants where, we, you know, we were raised with this kind of mantra that it's it's easy to form an opinion about something it's what you do with that opinion that that separates people and so even though i was opposed to the war i kept reading these articles about how our government didn't have anybody that knew the language or didn't or had any kind of experience in the region and so i i applied for a job and got it with the us agency for international development which was trying to rebuild the country i didn't think there was any ethical conflict there. It was a way of kind of righting a wrong in, in my mind. Um, and uh, and so I got over there. I was 24. I was the only American working there that spoke Arabic. And as a result, I became very close with the Iraqis that were risking their lives to help us. And so fast forward, I've, I've a very crazy year of, uh, you know, just a disastrous occupation and it was all complete uh i don't know what your what your salty language whether yours is <laughs> oh, work away work away okay, it, was, it was it was a complete shit show it was a complete fuck up we we were making a complete mess of the country and then i had this um uh after a year i took what was supposed to be a very brief vacation to the caribbean to meet up with my family with my parents and my brothers and stuff. And um, I had what's called a dissociative fugue state, but they, they, it, it, it's sort of triggered by post-traumatic stress. A, a lot of guys have had similar episodes when you, when you leave the war, but, um, but in my case, I basically sleepwalked out of my hotel window um, and fell about, I don't know, 20 feet or so to concrete, and broke both my wrists, my jaw, my nose. I cracked my skull in a couple places. Look at you um, alive, Kirk. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've had a, I, I feel very, um, I mean, every doctor I've had has told me I should be either dead or in a wheelchair. Um, and so it was in that kind of abyss of like medical procedure after medical procedure. And just, you know, I couldn't even, I went from this, like what I felt was a very important job to, suddenly being back in my childhood bedroom and I couldn't even feed myself. I couldn't open a door by myself. I had casts on each arm. My jaw was wired. And so that in the midst of all of that, one of my Iraqi friends had been identified, given a death threat, got screwed over by the U S government. They didn't help him at all. And uh, it kind of snapped me out of my own funk and I was like, well, this is outrageous. I'm going to, everything I did was pointless there. All the projects I was trying to do unraveled, but I'm going to just see if I can help this one buddy of mine. And then at least there's like, if, if I can do something that will, it won't have been a complete waste, but I didn't know. I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't see myself as a writer. I didn't, I didn't know the first thing about how to help a refugee. I was just angry at how he'd been treated. So I wrote this piece, um, this opinion piece, which then kind of, spread like wildfire and so within you know hours of that running i was getting bombarded with requests for help from other iraqis and then i've got to figure out how i'm going to help them and then the next thing you know it's like years later and i'm 
Um, You're like, how did I end up here? Kind of. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I, can I just ask? Um, I won't. I won't dwell on it. Um, but I'm just fascinated because it's it's not often I get a chance to speak to somebody who was in Iraq during that kind of occupied rebuilding slash rebuilding phase, whatever you want to call it, the, the yeah. term. Blowing it up while we're trying to rebuild it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you living in the, what do they call it? The, the green the, zone? Yeah. So the first, the first portion of my time I was, um, and it was, uh, you know, everyone says surreal. It's like the word doesn't mean much to me at this point now, but it's a, it's not like living in the Middle East there. It's you're in this heavily, secured uh you know two square mile uh bunker basically of all of these different compounds and you know every 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 monday you get the week's calendar of events and it'll be like you know thursday thursday's surf and turf day and we're gonna we're gonna have a a a three-point contest at saddam's pool you know like (laughs) that kind of stuff um and it was a a bunch of bureaucrats basically um uh trying to spit shine a disastrous war with these little reports that we were filing back with back and forth with each other and i i had not signed up for that and i was this young impatient uh you know punk and so i I went to the head of the agency in baghdad and i was like i i don't want to be here i want to do something else i want to send me to the field and so she she's like, well, do you want to go to Fallujah? And I just blurted out, I was like, sure. And and no one had ever wanted to go there. And so I was the first civilian sent to to try to rebuild it at a time when it was sort of, uh, you know, it was a pretty bad time in the war. Was um, it pretty nerve wracking, like in the sense that every time you left the green zone, you're like, am I going to get shot, blown up? Well, once well, once I yeah, when you leave the green zone, it's all um uh you know you're being guarded not by u.s forces you're being guarded by kroll or blackwater or these mercenaries that have been hired and so security and such yes and so and actually there were there were a lot of irish mercenaries there um working for blackwater was it yeah, Blackwater, Kroll is another one, Dynecore was another one, Triple Canopy. Um, but the first time I ever went out, actually, um it's funny, I haven't thought about this in forever. I don't know if he was from from the north or what, but the first time I went out, all my guards were Irish and they they kept they kept saying like uses and stuff, and I was like, man, I haven't heard it. English, they, they'd, they'd be dubs. They'd be dub, double of it. Uh, no, yeah, it could be. Yeah, you, I don't know, but no, you. But the thing is, north as well. I bet you know the thing is, there's something about when you got because it was crazy. I was 24, and they would as soon as we would get out of these, you know, armed or uh, armor plated Humvees, they would descend around me and and form this circle of around me with rifles pointed out and so i was like i would walk 10 feet and stop and they would stop i could take three steps to the left and they would move with me you very quickly uh grow to love dudes who are doing playing that role for you. <laughs> so um Kirk. so the youth is i wasn't being judgmental about it like i was like man these guys are awesome they didn't t- their only job was to get me 
from point A to point B with safely enough without me dying. If they did that, great. Did it, if they, if they had to ram cars out of the way, which I had been in plenty of convoys where that happened, where people were injured and we just kept on driving, doesn't matter. And so they might bring me to some, you know, check on some wastewater treatment plant that the agency had been funding. And in that course of that, you know, whatever three mile journey to get there, we've pissed off like 4,000 people and we've rammed into cars and all this stuff, you know? And so um, it's, it's, it's completely surreal. Like we, you would, we would, there would be a massive highway and then Blackwater helicopters would descend on either on, on both sides to create a kind of um, alleyway that we would then cross laterally over it. So we're creating traffic jams. It's like, um, and so that was, but that was very different than when I got to Fallujah, I was just living with Marines there at this base that we had taken over. And in that scenario, I was with a bunch of Marines who they're not trained to protect civilians. They don't, they don't even understand what USAID is. They thought I was like, half of them thought I was a journalist. Half of them thought I was like some NGO type or whatever. And so in that scenario, my, my daily commute, as it were, um, it's, a, it's, it's a little, uh, crazy to think about now, but, um, but we would ride in the back of these, uh, like Humvees where they, they've been modified. So the back was kind of like a pickup truck bed. They were called tubs, tub trucks. And there was, I don't know, maybe four feet of, of armor plating around it, but it was just open air. And these insurgents were paying kids to run up and chuck grenades into the tubs. And a lot of Marines had been killed or had limbs uh, blown off. And so I get in, you know, first day going into Fallujah and these guys see me and they see that I'm not, I'm not carrying a weapon. And they're like, all right, well, you're swatter then. And I was like, well, what's a, what's a swatter? And they're like, well, if you see a grenade, it's your job to, to knock it back. So it doesn't come fall into the truck and blow us up. And I burst out laughing, like I'm kind of there's this awkward. I thought it was a joke, and they're like, they're like, why are you laughing? And I'm like, okay, no, okay, this is for real then. And so for like for months, it every day I had to be put in this kind of hypervigilant place where I was regarding little kids as a potential lethal threat, which I I saw myself as like I, that's I'm not a soldier. I'm like I'm the one, I like I can read their. I can read their novels. I, I, I know what music's popular. Like I'm supposed to have the kind of cultural understanding, but it completely evaporates in the, in those scenarios where you, and so fortunately I never had to, to bat one away, but my brain was in that space for, you know, an hour a day to and from going through town or whatever. And so I, you know, now when I think back, I'm like, yeah, well, that's probably enough to give you a little, a little PTSD there, you know? Yeah, little little wonder that you uh, ended up in that state, and hence you end up in a river fly fishing. Discovered that this is such a great way of escaping. Your guests have probably said this plenty of times, but like you know, trout tend to live in the most beautiful places in the world, and they also tend to live in places where there's no cell signal. Yeah. And that's a that's a very like uh, like that's a great uh, you know combo there but it's also like it's a very rare 
I, I felt things activated in my brain that felt kind of limbic and ancient. You just, just sitting there for 30 minutes, just studying a fish and how it's feeding and what that did to my brain at the end of every day. And just in terms of just slowing the world down for me a little bit. Um, I, I mean, it's to this day, I never, I have, I'm a horrible sleeper as my wife can attest. I can't, it's the one thing it's the one kind of, I think, permanent hangover from the war and from my accident is I just, it's, it doesn't matter how tired I am. It's impossible for me to get to sleep unless I, like I distract myself by watching something in my headphones or whatever. Um, but the only time that I don't need any of that is when I spend the day fishing. That's it. It's, it, and so, and I say that as somebody who's, I'm just emerging. I have a six-year-old and a five-year-old. So I'm emerging from the trenches of like babies. And even that wasn't enough to knock me out, but, but fishing still does. So that's amazing. And of course it was fishing. You're, you're standing there in the river and your guide Spencer are yeah. telling you this story. Um, and- well, and you, I mean, you had asked like, what was it about this that was so captivating? And, you know, at the time that I went out with Spencer um, it, you know, we were just starting the, the initial withdrawal. And so I was like from Iraq, that is. And so, um, I was kind of under siege in my mind in terms of like, I had all these media inquiries. I had all this pressure to try to get as many people out before we, before we finally sort of bugged out of there. And I was, in New Mexico, I was supposed to be there like on a writing residency, but I wasn't getting any work done. And so I just went on Google and and searched for a, a guide and Spencer's name pops up. And um, I, I didn't have much money back then. And so a guide was sort of like an extravagance to me. And so I was a little like kind of, you know, I was like just drilling. I wanted to learn as much as I could. Um, I I told him to just treat me like a complete amateur, which I mean, it still was at that point. But, um, and we were like having a pretty, pretty good morning. And, um, and then, and then I see a salmon fly, which I'd never seen before. Fly time was even trout flies. Like I, it didn't have any hold on me. I, it was just, I, I would just go to Orvis or LL Bean or whatever, like whatever the local fly shops, spent a boatload of money on a bunch of flies that I didn't really understand that well at that point, but there was, I I hadn't gotten to that, you know, uh, appreciation of it. So I didn't know anything about, you know, classic or Victorian salmon flies, but I see one in his fly box and, you know, it was so strange looking to me, um, that I, you know, I start pumping him for, explanations about it he starts telling me about the history of it and and then he like he we're in the you know waist high in this river and he's like well if i mean if you think this is interesting like you should hear about this kid who just broke into the british museum of natural history stole a million dollars worth of dead birds in order to sell to this cultish subculture of victorian salmon fly tires so that he could buy himself a new golden flute and in my mind, I was like, you know, it was one of those things where like, you know, you hear the record scratch or the needle scratch on the record, but I'm just, 
it seemed to me like the perfect sentence. It just, it was like, there was so much to unpack there. But, you know, like the, anytime you're on or near a river, like your bullshit meter goes up, everyone's, you know, and so at first I thought like, oh, this can't be, this can't be right. Like this, you know, and so that night when I, when I got back online, I, I opened my laptop up and I, I just started Googling, I quickly found this classic flytying.com forum. And uh, and then Spencer was friends with Edwin, the feather thief on Facebook. And so I I, I didn't know what I was doing. I had not written a, a, a book before at that point in my life. I'd never seen myself as like an investigative journalist or anything. I just understood that there was something ephemeral about this that like, so I started printing things out, not trusting that they would be there, started taking screenshots. Um, but I was also, I quickly realized that there were a lot of things that had already been deleted, like links to dead posts and stuff related to the theft. And so, so that, that was the first indicator that there was something kind of juicy here and that there was but there was also like literally like two or three articles a bbc article maybe something in the telegraph and that, that was it like there was and, and this was post sentencing at that point and so you know everything really um uh sprung from that moment there was just this uh something so strange and colorful at the same time about this crime and about the 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 world of people that benefited from it the absurdity of it the obsession of it that that this story in some ways became like an alternate like you know like they these guys that they tie flies in the off season to like get ready for the, you know, to get ready for spring or whatever, like this kind of in some ways became that for me, where if I couldn't get to a river, I could at least duck into these forums and poke around a little bit. And so, I mean, I have one very fond memory of testifying before Congress about um, what was going to happen when we finally pulled out of Iraq and Afghanistan and how we needed to build evacuation plans into our withdrawal plans. And it was this really kind of like passionate, intense um, testimony. And then I got back to my hotel room and I logged into classicflytime.com. And, you know, it's like, I was like, oh, okay. Like, wow. Okay. So so-and-so knows so-and-so. Okay. I'm going to make a note of that. And so it was, it was this kind of like split personality that I had um, that even to the point that when that, when a feather thief came out, all of my DC world friends, like people in government, they're like, they're like, man, this is so weird. There's someone with your name who's written a book about a museum. <laughs> it's, you know, like I just kept everything separate, you know? But actually um, that makes sense there because I was gonna, my next question was to, was like the story wouldn't let you go, but you didn't see yourself as a writer. Like if you were, saw yourself as a journalist author, I could understand you go, yeah, that's the story. I'm going after that. That's my next book. But it makes sense now what you're saying. It was like your downtime. It was like your off time. That was just, a, it was just a, a niche that needed to be scratched and you needed to keep scratching it. Like, was it? Yes. And it, and, and, and crucially, it had nothing to do with anything that was bringing me down or that I had been through. It, it was about, 
I, I remember making this list of all of the different things that I would need to, to learn if I was to understand the story. And it was just this voluminous list of like, you know, the history of fly tying, who the hell was Kelson with the history of museums? Who was Alfred Russell Wallace? Why is he important? I had to learn about birds, about, about the, the feather trade, all of this stuff. And, and it, you know, I think I had on some subconscious level, like an understanding, like, oh, this is a book. And I, you know, I, cause I, you know, I had like, I had been publishing, I had been writing op-eds and things like for the New York Times and elsewhere, but they were always about the war. It was about the refugee crisis, but I was still, so I guess in some regards, I I saw myself as something of a writer at that point, but, but this was so um, just utterly captivating. But the thing that was so um, appealing was that it was closed off to me that it was a, it was a, something locked in a box. And I, I knew if I, I had, I knew if I kept probing, if I kept tinkering around, I might finally be able to open it. And so I remember in the first days of going on that forum, you know, there's like with any subculture, but there's just this mountain of jargon and slang and acronyms and things that I didn't know what any of it meant. And then there's this, you know, all these different dudes and you don't know who they, who or where they are. And so I remember making, I made like an actual, um, was on a big sheet of, of paper, but where I had Edwin in the center of it. And, and then I had the people that I knew he had, like, I found a number of posts where he had like, you know, message like in the form, it was Goku, G-O-K-U. I didn't know who that was, but I put Goku next to Edwin because I knew there was something going on there. And then I, it kept kind of um, telescoping out. And so then I would, I had like maybe the hardcore, I don't know, a couple hundred names on here, but where if two guys got in a public spat on the forum about, no, oh, it's, it's four raps, not five raps, you know, <laughs> like some of these, these dumb arguments, sorry, but um Tom's a fly tire, by the way, Kirk. So be careful. <laughs> but so no, I, I'm really. I, I'm, by the way, it's four, Kirk. But look, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so when there were these stats, I would actually make note of it. Like, oh, this dude doesn't like that dude. And so then, when I was just, I was carpet bombing everyone, asking if they would talk to me. And then, if I managed to get someone on the phone with me, I would very deliberately at some point mentioned the other guy that he got in a fight with and without fail he'd be like yeah well that asshole you should talk to him like he's i know he bought from edwin and i'm like well how do you know and he's like well i'll show you and then people would start forwarding me things from from back in the day you know and so i kind of kept trying to flip more and more people until i was working my way into the center of that of that map until you know because i was asking edwin almost every six or nine months if he would talk and he had no reason to talk but i think at some point um i you know the 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 calculus shifted a little bit where i think you know i basically said like look i'm writing this book with or without you but i think you have every right to tell me your version of events um because i'm hearing it from all these other other dudes um and so i think that's what led to him finally agreeing or accepting to to this interview but even the interview itself like that was a whole fascinating 
like, and even you still kind of come away from it going, <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, and, and that's what I loved about the story. And Tom, I'm sure you got that from it as well. It was just, it's still open-ended to me, you know, isn't it in many respects? Like, you know, I know we know who it is, but there was still kind of like going, well, still out there. No. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny too, is there was this dynamic where, you know, my wife was there, um, you know, helping record the interview and she's like, you know, this, at the, at the time she was this like high powered practicing lawyer and like, she's, uh, and so I could see her at moments where I was starting to back Edwin into a corner, I could see her like the lawyer part of her, like, like wanting to say to Edwin, like, don't answer this question. It's not going to help you, you know, but fortunately she, she didn't, she didn't, but, but, you know, we, we have this discussion all the time. Like what, why did he agree to speak? What, what was in it for him? Um, I, I, you ask yourself, you, you say after words in the book that, you didn't know how much he played you in that. Yes. You talked to him. So would you not think that that's the reason why he did agree? I think, I think, I think there's a a number of, I think I still to this day sometimes wonder if, if I was played by both him and Long. Yeah. Cause Um, you you said that about Long as well after uh, interviewing him. Yes. Um, I think, I think for Edwin, I think, I think there were there was a, a number of things. I th- he knew at that point there were articles about the book deal because it was a fairly, you know, after Scribner passed on it, I think there were like a dozen publishing houses competing for it. And so there was an article about me doing it. So he knew the book was coming. I told him the book was coming. I I think he probably knew he'd probably gotten tipped off by a number of people in the community that I had spoken to them. And, you know, so I think there was some kind of probably curiosity about how much does this guy know this guy being me um i think there is it it was a gamble but some kind of possible damage control or trying to contain or reroute me um if if possible um i think my, my wife is more in this camp but i think there's a I mean, I, I think I'm in it too. Like, you know, I, because I, I find this with all of my books. You would think putting a microphone in front of someone would make them clam up, especially if we're talking about a, a crime that they had a, a role in or had just perpetrated themselves. But the the male ego is a powerful thing. <laughs> Uh, and, and that can render you powerfully stupid. <laughs> and so I think there's a, there was, I think there was a part where he's like, here's this guy who has just spent years studying everything he can about me. I, I don't know. I'm guessing here. Um, but that, and I also think, I mean, Edwin is a, uh, a very uh, smart slash gifted person. I think he's used to being the smartest person in the room. And that's all well and good, but I think it gets you into trouble sometimes. I think it can blind you to some uh, some some threats, which I I mean, me writing this book was in some ways uh, a danger to Edwin. I'm not, I wasn't trying to 
make his life dangerous or anything, but he he probably should not have spoken with me. Can I ask you this? And maybe I'm skipping because we're talking about you him agreeing to you to do the interview with you. You met him, you describe him afterwards as obviously, and you've just said they're smart, obviously intelligent. The judge describes him as such. What happened to him the night of the theft? So, because, you know, had he, as you say, you know, just taken a couple of skins from each one, he might never have ever been discovered. What happened? I mean, that is, he was definitely not the smartest person in the room that night. Well, the thing is, though, I go back and forth, like, because there's, I, I mean, everyone probably likes to think of themselves as as empathetic, but I, I try really hard to like suspend judgment and to put myself and see see how if I can understand why somebody does a certain thing. It's still very difficult for me to walk through the number of steps of what it means to even snip barbed wire away, to climb up on a wall, to bash a window out, to crawl through the window. But knowing that there's security there to then, you know, walking through and being there. He, I mean, he thinks he might have been there for hours. Um, but for all of that kind of brazenness, and at first, you know, they tried to, you know, his lawyers tried to suggest that this was, you know, just a spur of the moment idea, but it wasn't. There was tons of planning involved. But the truth is, he got away with it for 15 months. So it wasn't like it was this, you know, amateur hour. He was good enough that like, yeah, okay, he left some evidence on the scene, but it wasn't, he doesn't, he's not going to show up in any, um, you know, database with, you know, uh, felons in the UK or whatever. Like, so they they found a, dr- a piece of glass with blood on it. They found, I think, a little a little shred of, of, a, of a rubber glove that they found his glass cutter. But... They didn't have any any real leads. And I think this is in part, this is why the museum and I kind of lock horns, but you know, you know, it's there aren't 10,000 people that get access to that collection every year in, in Tring. There are hundreds at in a, on an average year. And if you're dealing with a catastrophic theft, as they described it, um I don't know why, you know, because they they told me that his name, that he had signed in with his own name on the visitor's log. He emailed them asking about these exact specimens. Like, the only way I can explain that inaction is that they were in, uh, do you guys use CYA over there? Like, they were just in cover your ass mode. They were in damage control mode and that they, they, they wanted, you know, I think they, I don't doubt their, their commitment to the the institution and the collection and all of that. But this was, you, you read some of these, these minutes of their, of their, um, you know, museum board meetings and the, the word reputational harm or reputational risk pops up all the time. Um, and so, you know, this is where I, I gave a, I keynoted some convention a few years ago of, of museum curators. It happened to be in Chicago. And I was, it was a different kind of talk because I was going very detailed in very detailed way about how he had cased the place, how he did the heist, because I wanted everyone in the, in the room, I don't know, 700 curators 
to take note and to, and to uh, be on the lookout for this type of behavior, these types of uh, approaches that Edwin used. And someone from the British Natural History Museum came up like in, in, a, in a public Q&A, went to the mic, and they tried to suggest that they knew all along that it was a fly tire. It's just they couldn't get the cops uh, to buy into it. And it, it's just flat out wrong to the point of being a lie. I don't know, but because I'm, I know the detective quite well. Um, she was, she would have jumped at, at that explanation as quickly as possible. Um, I think the museum, if they did know that it was a fly tire, I think they, I mean, they wrote this in one published uh, article about it, but that I think they quickly came to this assumption that it was probably whoever stole it had probably destroyed it all. And so I think with that kind of dour assumption, I think it made them kind of, uh, I mean, this is a theory, but I think it made them kind of say, well, that's a lost cause, yeah. you know, yeah. like when, case dismissed kind of. Yeah. That um, seems to come across when you write that they really seem to have just, that's it. It's written off now. That's it. Move along. Let's forget about it. That's it. Yes. The fact that on the day of the sentencing, the head of the museum said we're we're pleased to consider the matter resolved or whatever the language was when there was still about a third of a million dollars worth of birds missing mm. seems like something of an indictment to me and again this is where i'm always i always feel like the need to kind of step back a little bit that like we're talking about the victim here we're talking about like they like they and, and for all of the uh my frustration with the british museum they were the ones that were burgled they're the ones that are dependent on on the public for their funding and on the public for a kind of a, a, a trust in their uh, the, 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 their reason for existing. And they're not bank vaults. They exist for the dissemination, for the propagation of knowledge. If they view inquiries, scientific inquiries, as things that have to be vetted 10 times over, that goes against their core mission. And so did they trust, they, did they trust Edwin the first time when he said he needed to go take photographs of Wallace's Birds of Paradise? Yeah, they did. And, and, they, and Edwin preyed upon that trust. And so, you know, it's, 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 it's for as much as I get frustrated by their response, because, you know, when I went back the, the day, the day that I met, Attenborough, I was supposed to go up. I, I forget the name of the Waterstones. Is it? There's some book chain and yeah, yeah. Waterstones. Yeah. And they they went up. They brought me up to Tring for to to film an interview, and they wanted me to film at the museum. And the museum told them they're like Kirk Johnson is not allowed in the on the premises. <laughs> you know, you yeah. And so I'm sort of like I'm like guys like. There are there are hundreds of thousands of people that have now gone to natural history museums because of this book that, that understand what collections are and what they're used for that are outraged over it. There's like I'm I've given talks at natural history museums where the director comes up afterwards and they're super excited because there's some well-heeled donor that just wrote a massive check to help them with their security. Like I'm. I'm You're on the good their, guy. <laughs> yeah, but I, and so there's a there's a part of me, but but you know I'm like I'm still kind of a red blooded American where I'm like if somebody 
is antagonistic to me, it's really thrilling. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, uh, but I just, I feel the need to like, at least get it out there that like, it's, this isn't a situation where they were just flooded with funding for all kinds of security and stuff that, and they, they wasted it all on, on, you know, fancy dinners or something. They're constantly struggling to get the resources they need to protect this while balancing the kind of imperative of the institution to, to create access for this. Um, they, and so, and that they were very much kind of uh, preyed upon by Edwin in this scenario. But I think that if, you know, I, what I feel very comfortable saying, I think they let uh, PR considerations uh color this investigation or drain it of the urgency that it required. And so the fact that, um, you know, it, it wasn't until one dude and the police service of Northern Ireland just happened to be at a, at a fly tying show in, in, in Amsterdam, in, in Holland, just happened to be, in the right at the right booth at the right time to hear somebody one of Edwin's customers bragging about this uh, about the skin that he had just bought you know you could make the case like you you commit a crime like this and you sell it to enough people at some point it's going it, to you're going to get found out but you know he made it 15 months and and sold a ton of these things out of that community and, it, and that is actually the interesting thing because I remember, and it was, I, I was remiss of it. Like, cause I was like, oh, that's, you know, I know there's no obvious Irish angle to it. And you're like, eh, well, actually, do you remember the PS and I? And I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, like, in case folks, you know, in terms of that, so it was a PS and I undercover officer. He was at a, a flight and he was into fly tying. And- yeah. He, uh, he apparently, and it's like, just forgive my, I don't know if I'm going to be stepping on any, any, uh, fault lines here but he he basically would be on these eight ten hour stakeouts in the back of a van during the troubles and was just losing his mind in boredom and so he he took up fly tying as a way of sort of helping to pass the time and it, and it grew into something a little bit more intense and I, I have to be kind of somewhat restrained about how I talk about it, just so your listeners understand that I, I, he never wanted to be identified. He was, I think, probably pretty shocked when I found him, <laughs> um, which was, a, which took me a long time. Um, but as we spoke, I agreed that I would never reveal his identity. And so there's, I, I only call him Irish in the book. Um, but, um, uh, but he's the, he's the one guy who I mean, who basically set in motion the 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 dominoes that eventually led to Edwin getting arrested it's funny yeah. that you mentioned that because you say like i would have thought well at some stage it would have come to light if the psni officer hadn't have uncovered it but yeah you just touched on it there maybe it wouldn't have had i yeah i don't know because you know these guys yeah they they immediately um but you know i there was some there was there was one incredibly damning forum post, which, you know, that forum is completely dead now. It's just a dead link. Yeah, um, I looked it up. But, after. <laughs> but 
But there was one incredibly damning forum post where they were they were arguing about the price of a of a of an Indian crow, a red rough fruit crow, I think. And someone made this joke about, oh, we, you know, they that it was stolen from the British Museum, that it was stolen and there was a 3,000% markup. I'm forgetting the exact wording. That post and that conversation where there's all these guys kind of laughing about it, um, that was, I think, something like eight months before the arrest. These guys all knew, like, you have to be powerfully uh, dim or in a state of powerful self-denial to to accept that a an 18-year-old college student in London suddenly is sitting on the largest private stash of the most coveted birds in the, in the world and he's just it's just a free for all when you know when those when the press release about the heist was rifling through that that forum when it happened they all knew the that, that that these birds that the birds that there had been a theft from the museum. And, and suddenly now like this, the future of fly tying, Edwin Rist suddenly is sitting on tons of the same birds. It's kind of, these dots are not very far apart to connect. Um, but, you know, he, I mean, Edwin told me that a lot of his customers knew enough not to ask any questions. And some he would give a kind of, bullshit provenance story you know he found it in this estate sale or whatever but but kirk some of them didn't even care you i mean oh. one that really got me was you know after all of this and you're you're trying to source the skins again when you when you contact the south african guy yeah just threw me and he more or less like i can't like more or less says it's god's will so yeah. i'm gonna keep him <laughs> yeah yeah and, and you know just to add to that um you know, so that that was the guy who just straight up told me, yes, I, I have him. And no, I'm not going to give him back. And he's in this kind of uh, end times, I would call it a cult, but sect um, that he felt that anyone that believed in evolution and these museum curators were doing the work of the devil. And so he had a greater right to these things than, than they did. Um, but when the book came out, or on the eve of the book coming out, um, one of my sources was at uh, a fly tying convention, um, maybe a month or so before the book came out. And he called me up and he said he had heard two different conversations where the guys were saying, we got to sell this shit before Kirk's book comes out. Um, and so, you know, and I think, you know, the fact that, I mean, that forum is dead. Um, I think the, the, the demand for these feathers has not abated at all. Um, I talked to somebody not long ago and they think that since the book has come out, the value, the, the sort of street value of these feathers is such an insane statement, um, has quintupled because it's been pushed deeper underground because there there's maybe more concern about, about the sale of it. Um, but, um, but no, there was no, like, you know, I, I'm not naive. I wasn't thinking there was going to be this grand reformation, but I don't, if it's not clear from the book and I, I, I don't say this with any 
you know, great reservation. Like I don't, I don't, I can respect the art form. I don't respect at all this obsession with the authentic. You guys will know this far better than I am, but this is all they have made themselves into this monastic order, embracing these 19th century books as gospel when it's all bullshit. <laughs> and they, they, there's no, there's no, I mean, you know how many emails I get from people who read the book that, and they, there's pictures of this and salmon aren't easy to catch, but they, you don't need this shit to catch them. And so, you know, people have shown me hooks with a candy wrapper tied onto it with dog fur, you know, like that kind of stuff. And so there is this, absurd obsession with authenticity that you just nudge it a little bit and you realize it's all just this house of cards. And it's just, it's this sad kind of status pursuit or status protection where these guys have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars over their career fly time to accumulate all this stuff. And so why would they take kindly to the idea of using a dyed sub? That completely, that's like as, a, you know, a, a more of a threat than anything else to, to what they've put into it. They, anyways, I don't know. If you I say that say. happens. Didn't Spencer, didn't Spencer started up a group or, you know, a movement to use not the authentic feathers, but to tie all the classics using yes. substitutes. And he got poo-pooed by these people. Yes. In fact, he got, he got, he told me last, I think it was last year, the ASFI told him that he wasn't there was no room for for subs for tying with with alternates that he was he was uninvited or disinvited because he was only going to be tying with substitute feathers so and i will say i will say that the you know because there's a lot like these guys the hardest core of this community they hate me i'm 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 at peace with that okay i don't i don't care it's but it's funny because i feel like at times i need to say this especially to an audience like yours you know, it's not like I got bullied by a fly tire when I was a kid, and I've just been wait, biding my time, waiting, waiting for the same on as you as you were. You know, I didn't, I didn't give a shit about any of this. Revenge this is, guy, is mine. This is a guy yeah. who came from Fallujah. I think he'd be all right. Like. No, and so there's a part where I'm just like, this is just a really simple question of right and wrong. It doesn't belong to this community, and the, and they tried badly for years and i think that's why the book was a, a threat to them for years they had i think kind of snowed over a lot of outsiders into thinking that, that edwin was just this lone bad apple mm-hmm. had nothing to do with the rest of us and oh look at here's a cory bustard initiative where we kind of mail each other look see that we're we care about all this stuff we're not obsessed with it while the while the trade in this was still going on at a fever pitch and you know, hate to say it, guys, but I'm at five museum heists now that have been carried out in the name of fly tying to feed that community. Wow. So this Edwin's was by far the, yes, Edwin's, but there's one that's happening right now where it involves a, a corrupt graduate student who's been stealing specimens from a, an American university collection. I have to be a little like kind of circumspect in how I, in how I talk about it, but these, these guys know they're buying stuff that... They they think that the book comes out that I don't see any of this anymore, but I, I still get stuff sent to me all the time. But but the point being that like they have, I think, are so morally compromised by this that they 
they view me as this sort of threat, but also, and I mean, you know, we, I, I gave you a heads up about this, but it's something that I'm, I'm very furious about. Um, Spencer, for the sin of telling me this story, has had to go to law enforcement on more than one occasion because he's received death threats from fly tires. And I know their names. I know who issued them. All for the all for the sin of and I guarantee you they've listened to your program all for the sin of of telling me about a museum heist that they claim they allege has nothing to do with them or with the integrity of this community while they delete any reference to it. And while they ostracize everyone who tries to maybe reform this a little bit and to move this away from a kind of. um uh, I, I don't know, criminal dependence on on stolen feathers. But um, it is but what you're saying there, Kirk, though, it's not like the risk story. It wasn't just a one off five, you're saying, yeah. you know, so it's it's continuing like and, well, you know, no wonder they hate you because you because the continued success of your book continues to shine a light on this, you know, uh, for people that have only picked up the book recently kind of go, what? But you know, what's funny about it is like at, at one point near the end of the um, of writing the book, I kept coming up, I kept finding out about other, other thefts of specimens. And I would run upstairs and tell my wife, I'm like, there's another one. There was a German museum. And she, she looks at me and she's like, so is this like going to be what you do now? This is your thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, I, I, I fully realized that like, uh, I became just as obsessed with these birds as Edwin did, but in, for a different reason. Yeah. Um, but, um, but it, you know, there really was to me, um, there was n- nothing more than, you know, they don't belong to this community. They have blown open a crater in the scientific record mm. at these specimens. I don't, I don't want to over, over, overhype the value but i mean they they have a kind of magical quality to them as far as science goes i mean some of these specimens have been in that museum since before the word scientist existed and there's something really remarkable to me that we have generations of scientists who have opened those drawers up again and again and again each generation with new tools with new questions to try to understand and to increase our understanding of what's happening to this changing planet and what the planet used to look like before we went and made a mess of it all. And now they pull those drawers open and they're empty. And these guys are, are, you know, losing their minds over, over what did Blacker say versus what did Kelson say about where, where it, when it has, and, and when, when, the majority of these guys that I know in the hardest core of this group, they don't even know how to fish, (laughs) you know? And so there's a point where I'm like, Hey, I get it. Like I'm, I, I, I like, I, I, I can admire the, the, you know, artisanship that goes into these things, but you know, I, I have said this for years now. I don't know of any other hobby that so quickly pushes its adherence into criminal behavior. (laughs) Than Victorian salmon fly time. <laughs> Who would have thought, eh? Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> Did Edwin Rist ever fish? As far as I know, he still has never fished. 
Fuck. He won. He won some pretty nice fly rods and reels from fly tying tournaments, but but uh, I think they just went into a closet somewhere. Our thanks to Kirk Wallace Johnson for joining us on the show, and you can buy the Feather Thief online. Get your hands on a copy. I can only really highly recommend it. It's great read, really good read. And then don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Plus, you can keep up to date on IrelandOnTheFly.com as well as on Instagram. And myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. <laughs>